Good morning, everyone. Before I speak, uh, I, I always dig into my little hodgepodge bag of things that I've learned over my years in trying to find something true. And I always share the same three things that I found up to this point and to try and uh, get the, the stew simmering, as it were. And those three things, as many will remember, the first of which is from Takur, his teaching about what the most important thing in spiritual life is. And he said that uh, the most important thing is uh, sincerity and earnestness of heart. He says if you're sincere and earnest, that God will take care of the rest in getting you to where you need to go. And so I always like to begin with a commitment to myself, a commitment to you, and, and maybe for you to make a commitment in your mind and, and uh, however you want to go about doing that, for sincerity and earnestness as we look into these things. The second I borrowed from Jesus when he was asked what the, most, uh, the greatest commandment was, the most important commandment, and he said love, to love God as you love to, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That was the most important commandment. And so I like to go into that place and to make that commitment to you this morning, that I'll speak from a place of love. I'll generate that feeling of love to stand in the presence of divinity of love. And uh, for you to also make that commitment inside, to, to come from that, that place that's your true nature, to find that love for one another, for yourselves, um, for your relationship with the divine, however that plays out. And then the third one comes again from Ramakrishna uh, when he uh, was throwing away the pairs of opposites, you know, trying to do away with seeing the world as, in its dualistic state and trying to find just God. You know, he said, oh, you know, mother, here's your pleasure and here's your pain. Take them both and give me pure love for you. And he came to truth and he was about to say, here's your truth and here's your untruth. And he stopped. He realized that that was one thing he could not throw away, could not let go of, was truth. And uh, so this morning, I make that commitment to you to, to come from a place of truth, as, to the best of my understanding and my knowledge. And uh, more importantly, for us to make uh, that commitment inside. Uh, when we're faced with truth, um, a lot of times those barriers that we want to hold on to are rather difficult to look at, difficult to recognize. And so only in truth can we actually grow and be able to separate from those parts of ourselves that are not helpful, not letting us see. So with that in mind, I'm going to turn again to Hafiz for our poem to start this morning. It's called The Subject Tonight is Love. He says, the subject tonight is love, and for tomorrow night as well. As a matter of fact, I know of no better topic for us to discuss until we all die. That's where we're going this morning. It's my favorite topic to talk about love because it's bigger and I think deeper and broader and more inspiring uh, than, than any can realize. Certainly it has been an inspiration behind every movie and every song and every poem ever written from some aspect or another. And as a matter of fact, uh, the scriptures sort of point at it being the only thing that motivates us in anything that we do. It's a love for something. And uh, in that, we're going to go forward and talk about this idea of refuge. This idea came to me a couple weeks ago. Uh, we were sitting in the library or the bookshop out here with a few devotees, and we were just kind of talking. And we started talking about love and about 
how did uh, they, there was a friend of somebody who was having real troubles, you know, the, they referred to them as having lots of internal demons that they were fighting with and not always doing it successfully. And uh, we kind of turned the direction uh, of love and started looking at it uh, as a way of dealing with a situation like that. And so I began studying this idea of refuge, uh, taking refuge in God. The scriptures are full of that. Uh, Thakur says many, many, many times in the, in, in the Gospel of Ramakrishna to take refuge in God alone. Uh, you know, uh, Jesus uses the exact same words, actually. He says to take, the, take refuge in God alone. Buddha uh, also uh, doesn't tell you to take God and refuge, or take refuge in God, but he says to take refuge in the Buddha, you know, Ishwara, the, the manifestation of, of that power. So what is refuge? Refuge is a place. It's a place where you can go to, to regain your strength, a place that you can go to find your balance, find your center, find your peace of mind. It's a shrine. It's a cave in the heart, according to St. John of the Cross. It's a place that you establish inside where you can become uh, in touch with that inner divinity, that, that inner strength, that inner harmony that is your nature, that's your very being. According to the dictionary, it's a condition. It's a condition of being safe or sheltered from pursuit, from danger, or from trouble. In the story of Ram, one of the stories of Ramakrishna's life, he was in a uh, standing in a in a small pond, and the fishermen that were there uh, literally scaring the fish from one end to the other into a net, and a uh, big fish started swimming and circling around uh, Takwar's feet, and so the fishermen couldn't get to it, and he he kept the fishermen away and said, "No, no, this one has taken refuge in me. Save it. Don't 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 catch it." And uh, that idea is there, that Takur, at least for, for the ideal I'm speaking from, and uh, certainly it applies to anybody's ideals, but the ideals of Takur are founded in love and the idea of refuge and the idea of being pulled out or saved by taking refuge. As a matter of fact, uh, I was reading in uh, Inspired Talks this morning, Vivekananda was saying uh, that, uh, you know, if, if you can take refuge in God, that's the best thing. If you can take refuge in God, but he says only one man in a century or two is able to truly do such a thing. So then he says, we'll take refuge in an ideal like Takur or Jesus or Buddha. He says, if you can't do that, then take refuge in a stone image or a picture. You know, and if you can't even do that, then just offer a leaf or a flower with some devotion. He says, if you can't even do that, if you, then offer a good work, offer a good deed. And if you can't even offer a good deed, he says, then just throw your heart and soul down before the Lord and take refuge uh, because there's still a place for you, even if you're unable to give even the slightest bit of devotion. So it's that place of safety, that place of turning within to find that place. And it's an important ideal. It's something we really uh, have to strive to create and, and to, to remember and to be aware of all the time. Because the senses are pulling us out of it all the time, pulling us out into the world, getting us caught up in the horrible news that we look at, the front lines, uh, the headlines on the papers, you know, the disturbances all around us, uh, becoming concerned about things that we have no power over to begin with, that we really can't change. And so this refuge inside gives you, gives you a place where you can really surrender that, where you can find a place to make peace with that, where you can find a place of strength to deal with all of that. It's a turning away from danger and a turning toward safety. But it's not a running. It's not an escape. 
refuges for, for any soldier, for any army, is a place where you go to recuperate and to regroup and to get your armor back in place and get your sword sharpened or whatnot to go back out and fight again. And so, uh, you know, spiritual life is exactly that. I don't know why they chose violence as the, as the primary <laughs> example for spiritual life. Like the whole Gita and even Jesus, you know, the armor of, of God and the helmet of salvation and whatnot, that all the imagery is very, uh, very violent and, and whatnot. But we'll go with it because I'm not going to counter the sages that, <laughs> that chose those ideals. But I'm going to encourage us to, to see our, our space inside as that. It's a place for you to go to work. Go to work being strong, being fulfilled, being balanced, being well, nurturing yourself and nurturing, developing a, a, a habit of nurturing so that you can go out and act and do and be in, in the world around you, for the people around you. So it, our refuge has to be that. It has to be a place to find that strength. Vivekananda says, when the whole soul goes to God, when we take refuge only in God, then we know that we are about to get this love, this pure love, love for love's sake. This idea of taking refuge in God and in God alone. I'm going to look at it and break it into to three different aspects. Uh, refuge is a word, we know what it means, and even these ideas, I haven't said anything new to anybody. That, that's really even helpful. So uh, well, let's dig into it and, and kind of break it down some more. In, uh, in uh, the Dhammapada, I found a lovely uh, poem written, and it says, They go to many a refuge, to mountains, forests, parks, trees, and shrines, people threatened with danger. That's not the secure refuge. That's not the highest refuge. That's not the refuge, having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and stress. But when, have, but when having gone for refuge to the Buddha, to Dhamma, and to the Sangha, you see with right discernment the Four Noble Truths, stress, the cause of stress, the transcending of stress, and the Noble Eightfold Path, the way to the stilling of stress. That's the secure refuge, that the highest refuge, that is the refuge, having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and stress. The line in there that I liked was where he says, having gone for refuge to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, and to Sangha, those are the three aspects, the three places that we have available to us to take refuge. So I wanted to break those down. Taking refuge in the Buddha, and if this is offensive to any Buddhists, I apologize, I'm going to draw a parallel between Buddha being Ishvara, or the manifestation of God, or a higher principle. And so that first idea is to take refuge in God, to take refuge in the self, in the Narada Bhakti Sutras, it says, uh, it, it says that, that, that the lover of God gives up all other refuge and takes refuge in God alone. What does that mean, to take refuge in God alone? I had an experience, I guess, probably my third or it was my third year in the monastery in San Francisco. And uh, one of the monks who had been there, there were just two of us besides the head Swami. There were two of us uh, brahmacharis. Uh, at the time. And after my first three years, my brother monk left the monastery. And so I was alone. And uh, he had been gone, I guess, about a month and a half or so. And I was feeling so lonely. You know, the monastery there is pretty big. It's three stories. And I was the only one in there because Swami would be over in the temple in the office all day long. 
And I was just wandering around and just kind of rattling around thinking, I, you know, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up when Greg was here. That was cool. <laughs> I had someone to talk to and we had projects. But I was feeling terribly lonely and I was really struggling with it. And I was standing at the top of this winding staircase in the monastery that goes down to the front door. And Swami came in and he was coming up the stairs. And uh, he saw me standing there and uh, leaning on the railing, and I was doing my best to look dejected because I wanted some sympathy, some attention. And uh, he looks up at me and he says, oh, what is wrong? What is the matter? And I said, oh, Swami, I'm feeling, I'm just feeling so, I'm just feeling lonely. I said, I just, I'm just feeling really lonely. And he shook his head and just, (laughs) just kept walking and walked right past me, went into his room and closed the door. (laughs) Then he opened the door and he said, go to the shrine and then closed the door and went back in his room. I was, uh, I was furious, actually. <laughs> I didn't get any sympathy. I didn't get any encouragement. I didn't get any, ah, it's going to be okay. You're doing great. Hang in there. Didn't get any of what I was looking for. And, uh, but I decided, uh, ultimately, that I would listen to what he said, and I went into the shrine, and I sat there for quite a while just thinking about the situation. And while I was in there, it occurred to me, uh, one of the most important realizations, actually, uh, for me to date, this understanding of refuge. I understood that up until that moment, God was not real for me. That when I was bored, I went to the movies. When I was lonely, I had people over for dinner. When I was sad, I'd go drinking. You know, when I was just needing to escape, I would go dancing. I had a million refuges set up that I would go to for any of my given sets of problems. And here in the monastery, I had my one basic problem, and I had no way to go to any of those other things because they all cost money. And uh, not many monks actually end up going out to those places. So I realized at that point that God had to become my refuge, that that shrine had to work for me, that I had to find out how to get from my spiritual life what I had gotten from all of the shrines of the senses that I had gone to worship at in my life and to turn it around and to learn to take refuge from God alone, to find that refuge in God alone. And in thinking about that over the years, I've put together a few things from that I learned about God growing up and uh, miscellaneous places, some that I even stumbled upon recently. In the Bible, in 1 John, uh, God is described as love. He's actually not described as love. It says God is love, that they are one and the same. Satchit Ananda, Ananda, bliss, can also be translated as love. So love is something fundamental. It's fundamental to you and fundamental to me. It's actually one of the only things that we can actually use to describe ourselves. You can say, I am love. You can know that to be true. You can sit in that. And knowing that, I'm going to turn to another Christian reference, a book of Corinthians in the New Testament. It's in chapter 13. And Paul, 
attempts to describe love. Now, I don't know if you know who Paul is. Paul was uh, not one of the direct disciples of Jesus. Actually, he was a later disciple, but he was the main disciple of Jesus. I've always associated him with, with Vivekananda in the role that Vivekananda played for, for Thakur, for Ramakrishna. Uh, Paul played for Jesus. Paul was the one that ran around telling everybody what he had learned and being very outgoing about it and uh, con- <laughs> converting a lot, of the, a lot of the early world. But Paul, uh, before, uh, before he had his vision of Jesus, actually on the road to Damascus, he was on his way uh, to, to kill Christians. Paul hunted Christians for a living. <laughs> so he was on his way to Damascus to hunt down some Christians that were practicing underground that he had found out about. And he had that vision of, of uh, Jesus, and uh, Jesus just says to him, what, what's up? <laughs> Why are you kicking against the goads? You know, goad is something that you prod sheep with to get them to go in a direction. And if you, the sheep kicks against it, it, it hurts. And so Jesus says to him, why, why are you doing this? Why are you kicking against the goad? And Paul had an experience and uh, was led to Damascus to meet St. Peter, actually, who then took care of him. And so we have a rather significant turnaround. And so if anybody knows about love, uh, Paul would know because it, it flipped his life 180 degrees. It turned him completely around. And he's writing to this problem church in the city of Corinth. And he says to them about love, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Just in itself, that's a beautiful set of scriptures to meditate and to think about. But it's so much more than that, because that there is a description of your true nature. The true nature of that divine seed that sparks your life. It's the nature of what's inside of you, and it's the nature of the refuge that has been given to you inside to go to and to spend time with. And it's important to take that refuge and to put it in a very practical term. Because that description, that list of attributes of love needs to be the way you first treat yourself. That voice inside needs to have all of those characteristics. You can't have self-hatred and expect to love the world. You can't be self-accusatory and expect to be forgiven, forgiving of others. You can't, you can't beat yourself up for being on the low end of the stick and at the same time be encouraging to those around you. So this description of love, these characteristics of love, they are the way you need to first treat yourself in your inner space, in that inner shrine, when you spend that time in meditation. You know? And I say that because I've heard so many people talk about their spiritual practices as being deficient. Oh, I'm a terrible meditator. Oh, I can't do that for a second. Oh, I can't manage. I, I missed a whole week of meditation. You always hear, you know, occasionally you hear somebody say, oh, I had a great meditation today, you know. But the point being, that's, that's not it. I, uh, one of my early uh, friends, and I call him a teacher, uh, told me once, because I went to him and complained about my meditation, uh, 
And he said, uh, he said, you should never judge your own meditation because you don't have the skill to do that. Only an enlightened person can judge a meditation because you don't know at what level God is working. You know, it may be at the very subtle levels beyond your reach that he's fixing something very small that will trickle up into something very big. So anyway, to take these ideas, to speak to yourself this way first, and then to go through and put, the, put I in the place of love in this, in this list of attributes. Because if you can do that, that's realization. This is what, a description of you when you're perfect, when you stop believing yourself to be everything else. When you can say, I am patient, I am kind, I do not envy, I do not boast, I'm not proud, I don't dishonor others, I'm not self-seeking, I'm not easily angered, I keep no record of wrongs, I do not delight in evil, but I'm happy with the truth, I always protect, I always trust, I always hope. I always persevere. Thou art that. There is no other refuge. You can only say three things about yourself, and I think I've mentioned this before. Satchit Ananda, knowledge, bliss, <laughs> existence, absolute. So you can say those three things about yourself. You can say, I am love. You can say, I, I exist. You can say that, that uh, I am intelligent, that I am knowledge. Those are the three things you can say about yourself. Now, what's important about that? What's important about that is all the things that you can't say about yourself. I'm angry. I'm mean. I'm hurtful. You know, I'm depressed. <laughs> I'm sad. These are things that are not descriptions of you. These are things that you can only say in delusion when you're holding on to something, to an identity that has nothing to do with you. So take those things, those qualities of love, and reinforce them inside so that your inner shrine, the place that you go for your spiritual practice, so that that place is a place of encouragement, that place is a place of delight, a place of wonder, a place of excitement, a place where love is nourished and exists, so that you can find strength then to be that which you really are, and to go out and to be that in the world. Ramakrishna says, give up egotism and take refuge in this. Take refuge in this idea of love. That idea of egotism is that which is anything else. All of those other descriptors that you take on, you know, that, that, that have nothing to do with the experience of, 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 of you, the experience of, of, of the divine that's within you. So that's the idea of taking refuge in God, taking refuge in yourself, taking refuge in the teacher, in the Buddha, in Christ, in Sri Thakur, in Ma, whoever your chosen ideal is. The second one that the, the Buddha mentioned in the Dhammapada there was to take refuge in the teachings. Now this one's an idea that's very interesting uh, because I, I kind of noticed, actually, at first with Buddha when he was tempted by Mara, and then uh, with Jesus when he was tempted by the devil in the desert, and there's even a scene where Takur is uh, also being uh, tempted. And in each of those cases, you find that uh, these sages turned to the scriptures, turned to those things that they knew to be true in order to fight that battle. I'm going to read the one for Jesus, because we kind of got going on a Christian theme, and I thought I would just stick with it. Uh, 
in Matthew chapter 4, it's one of the direct disciples of, of Ramakrishna, writes this account of Jesus uh, being tempted, his final temptation before realization. When Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. <laughs> the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this, I'll give it to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written that you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. Now, uh, it's interesting as I read that. Well, of course, some scars are all over the place, those old <laughs> tendencies, because I grew up in Christianity. But uh, this idea that, that when, when you come to that point of battle, when, when you're being pulled in to the senses, when you're being, getting angry with somebody at work, you, know, you, can, you can personify that as a devil if you, as you want, or you can personify that as your lower self, or you can just set it up as some delusional whatever you want in your head. But when that confrontation is there between your true nature and what you think your nature is, when that battle is happening, find those scriptures that reestablish you in your true nature. You could choose this one from Corinthians about love. You could choose thousands of things that Takor says, you know, about, about being the self, about loving all as you, as, as, as you serve God and man, to be reminded of these truths and to take the scriptures and use them that way. Find some good things from any of the world's scriptures that, that remind you of these things and, and put them to memory so that you can have your little, your own little bag to your side that you can pull them out when the time comes, you know, when you're feeling frustrated or when you're feeling really self-hateful or really down, you know, or, 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 uh, you know, even if it, even if it's too late, even if you've lost the battle, <laughs> you're on your way home from the bar, you know, and you're like uh, kicking yourself around the block because you've, you, you didn't stand, you didn't win that time. Pull those scriptures out that will give you strength. You know, Vivekananda says, you know, the only, the only thing that he could find sinful in the world is something that makes you weak. He says, that which makes you strong is good. So use the scriptures to build up that fortress, to encourage yourself onward, to get excited about things, to get in, in, involved in the fight, to set up that determination to win. Don't, don't be afraid, uh, you know, to... to to throw yourself into the midst of that. Find God in the scriptures and find your refuge there. When you read them, when you're going through the scriptures, read them from that perspective. You know, before you open them, it's always good to set your space before you open any kind of scripture. And just open up. You know, if, if, you, if you believe in God, then open up yourself before the divine and say, I'm, I'm in front of you. I, I want to see, I want to learn, I want to know. Show me something that I need to learn. 
And then just read a paragraph or two paragraphs. And just know that that two paragraphs was chosen at that moment for you. Just believe it for no reason. You can't prove it or disprove it. Just believe it. And it will give a depth of meaning to you. And your teaching, your, your relationship with God comes alive. It becomes first person. You can sit there and have that dialogue you know, internally with the self, with the scripture in front of you as you reason out, and you look for that meaning. What is it in here that could mean something? You know, when I first started my uh, uh, quest, I guess, on spiritual life, if I ever did first start it, I don't remember that exactly, but early on, I got into all kinds of weird things. One was like the tarot, reading the tarot, and one was casting druids, <laughs> druid stones, <laughs> There's some funny stories of that, which is why I'm laughing. I'm just remembering really funny scenes that I can't really tell in a mixed crowd. But just sitting there, going in the morning in this glass table in my room and this driftwood chair. <laughs> I had written rune scripts on the wall, you know, encouraging scriptures from, from, from some old uh, earth religions uh, in Ireland and, <laughs> and whatnot. And... Uh, as I kind of started studying some of those things, because I was trying to build a religion from the ground up. I didn't want anybody else's thing. I wanted my own thing. And so this is kind of the seed of <laughs> what you see here, actually. So I was I was digging into that. And and when I was doing that, different kinds of studies, like studying the roots of the, of the, the, the tarot cards and where that idea came from, and reading runes and where that idea came from, uh, you know, these different spiritual uh, earth earth religions... I found one thing that they all had in common, uh, even in astrology. That's the whole basis of astrology, actually. That at this moment, everything in the universe is in a particular place. And that particular place is the sum total of, of every known variable possible to create this moment, which you can't grab, you can't isolate. It disappears. It just gets smaller and smaller as you get closer and closer. But it has impregnated it with the deepest meaning possible that this is the moment given to you by the universe, by God, by yourself, by everything altogether. And it's on that basis that the Druids, you know, are through their runes in order to give advice and that the tarot card can be used to give you advice or to tell you about things to come, make assumptions about whatnot. It can also be your assumptions about the divine and about that moment in your inner shrine, in your space, to know that this moment is the sum total of every desire you've ever had answered. This, this moment is your balance sheet of everything that you've wanted, everything that you've worked for. You know, some things, some desires were bigger and canceled out some smaller ones, some kind of joined forces and took it in this direction. But this moment, this moment is given to you by the divine for your realization. Maya, Maya is designed to give you realization. That's hard to believe, but it's true. If you pay attention, if you pay attention, the lessons are being taught constantly. The temporary nature of things, how things cannot fulfill you at any level, how they just flicker and disappear, leaving you hungry for more. All of these lessons are there, you know, and the sages pay attention and they see the wisdom in that teaching and they learn from it and they don't have to keep thinking, well, maybe it's just because uh, it was the wrong person. It was the wrong partner. I just need to find a better job. I, I need a new set of kids. <laughs> you know, it's like, 
all those assumptions that it's, it's just something wrong with this thing and I'll just keep looking, I'll just keep looking. That's not the point. The point is refuge. Stop looking and take refuge. Stop going outward. Find that peace within. Approach the scriptures as your strength. Let them teach you. Take refuge in the Sangha. What is our Sangha? Look around. (laughs) You're each other's Sangha. It's a lot of responsibility for each other. You know, in the the Christian church, they play that up quite a bit, uh, almost to the point of annoyance, really, (laughs) from, from my perspective. Don't mean to offend anybody. But that idea of being a support, being involved with each other's lives, being there for each other when, when you're down, being there to pull each other back up when you fall or when you're, when you're having a tough, tough go at it. And, uh, you know, I think in, in Vedanta, uh, my experience of Vedanta, which is about that big, uh, I think sometimes we're, such, we're so individualistic. It's such an individual religion. You know, we, we go off and do our practices by ourselves. And even when we come together, we're kind of a group of individuals more than a more than a sangha. You know, I think there's there's a lot of, of uh, separateness, and and a lot of us came here because we like that. I mean, frankly, I found that very attractive when I first came. Uh, I, I know my friend Philip said that it, he he went to uh, the San Francisco Center for like a year, and he he told me he said if anybody had come to me and and even talked to me, I would have left. <laughs> he didn't want anything to do with that. He was there for his own thing. So there's that aspect also. If you find, if you see that in somebody, you've got to respect that also. But this idea for one another, you know, for you being here this morning, first of all, it's cool because the sum total of all of your desires has brought you here. And one of the promises that I was just reminded of this week by Swami A, actually, is that Thakur says those people who are in their last birth will come here. You know, that, that if you come to Takur, if you come, and, and I think that, that, anyway, we won't get into the, <laughs> the nitty gritty of that. We'll just say the fact that your sum total of life or lives, depending on how you see things, has brought you here, has brought you to this room of people. And not only that, but every single other person in this room also the summation of their life experience, the summation of the choices that they've made, have led them to the same room to hear about the same ideal. So there's an amazing intimacy that we share that, we're, that we might have forgotten or might not even have realized or may not have just paid attention to. So you're in a room full of people whose summation has brought them here this morning. And in that, in that taking refuge with each other, Open up. Use that, that fact alone to take permission to be encouraging to somebody. Take that permission to be loving, to be caring, to reach out, you know, to, to, to just find out about somebody. And not only that, if you're the person being reached out to, take that moment as permission to say how you're doing, honestly, to share what you need, honestly to share what's hurting or what's not going on, honestly. Or just to tell the person, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to talk about it, you know. But, 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 but put a certain weight on the fact that we're together here this morning, that there's a reason behind it, and that all of our natures are that pure love, that, that, that pure being that we described just a few moments ago, you know, from Corinthians there. So as you go around with each other 
and you've, you've, you've taken hold of that idea inside, approach each other with that expectation that love is patient, I'm patient, you're patient. That love is kind, I'm kind, you're kind. We're acting in kindness. We don't envy each other. We're not boasting with each other about our greatness because that doesn't matter. We're in the same boat, literally, together. What is there to boast? What is there to be proud of? I don't dishonor other people. I'm not, I'm not talking smack about my, <laughs> the other people in the room, you know, what I saw such and such do or what I didn't see such and such do. You know, we don't delight in talking about people's weaknesses or their shortcomings, right? That's not our nature. So we don't do that. You don't do that. I don't do that. So we hold that, we hold that up for each other. We hold that up as a standard for each other. We remind each other of those things. We're not self-seeking. We don't come here just to get what we want. We come here to give. We come here to give flowers, you know, to, to our ideal. We come to hear, you know, we come to bring food. We come to bring ourselves, our encouraging selves, our giving selves, in whatever sense that is, you know, to tip the balance in the other way. We're not self-seeking. We're not easily angered. We're not easily angered. So when we, when we, when we see each other treat us in ways that we might not have appreciated at the time. We're not easily angered. It's very difficult to make us angry. You can do it, but it doesn't last long and it's not easily done. It's not easily done. I rejoice in the truth, talking about positive things, talking about the nature of, of the self, recognizing the nature of the self in each other. When you see somebody do or manifest that love, which is true to their nature, worship that in them. You know, worship that in them. When you see somebody do something nice for somebody else, worship that in them. And even if you can't find anything about anybody worth worshiping, worshiping the truth of the divine that is in them. Speak to that in them. Feel intimate with that in them. That's sangha. That's refuge. That's a place of strength. That's a place that you can bank on. Take this place and make it your sangha. Make it your refuge. And be a refuge to the people around you. Be any of these characteristics. Always protect. Always trust. Always hope. And always persevere. Don't give up. Don't give up. For me in my monastic life, that's probably, <laughs> that's probably the best thing I can say about it. I didn't give up. I haven't given up. By the grace of Takori, I won't give up. You know, that's really the only, the only thing that I come back to sometimes in my prayers. I, I'm really not kidding when I say that. I mean, I, there's sometimes when I sit in, in the shrine, I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. And I've learned to take a lot of refuge in that. I've heard, I've, I really have. Because there's a lot of times, you know, in, in San Francisco, I resp was responsible for doing the worship every morning. And uh, in the in the shrine in the monastery, and so I had a lot, a lot of time to sit there by myself and reflect, you know, because when you're sitting in front of the shrine, when you're sitting in the presence of your highest ideal, when you're sitting in the presence of, of that that shining perfection, uh, who feel who feels good about themselves <laughs> at that time? You know, you're like, oh my god, <laughs> don't look at that. Oh, let's not pay attention to that, you know. But that's the exact point of it. If you have the right conception of what you're sitting in front of, 
you will feel nothing but the greatest joy, nothing but the greatest sense of love, the greatest sense of acceptance, the greatest sense of nurturing and encouragement and fulfillment. Because that is the divine. That is God. That's the highest ideal. So God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. He does not dishonor people. He's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Wow. (laughs) How many of us have heard of a God like that? Keeps no record of wrongs. The God I grew up with was keeping track of every little thing I did, you know, and that list was getting long. God keeps no record of wrongs. He's not holding things against you. This moment is new. It can be made into anything tomorrow that you want it to be. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. God always protects. God always trusts. God always hopes. God always perseveres. God doesn't give up. The Divine Mother doesn't give up. Always behind you. Always encouraging you on. Always lifting you up. Go farther. Be stronger. Look higher. Know that this infinite source of love is behind you. Swami Arupeshananda, I think I told this story at the retreat in uh, in. He's the head of the center in Chibuco Canyon in California. And he's coming out of a really difficult time. I mean, his mother went into the hospital for a simple procedure. They found a huge tumor. They took the tumor out. She went into a coma, boom, boom, boom. Something that was supposed to be an in-and-out situation turned into a, to a two-month, two-and-a-half-month ordeal where she was fighting for her life. And she would go from a day of looking like it was all going to be great to suddenly slipping into nowhere land. And uh, I, I, I was I was trying to you know <laughs> be encouraging or you know be there for Swami or for him as my friend because he and I took our sannyas in India together took our vows together and so there was there's a certain connection there and you know when you're talking with somebody who's in that kind of situation uh, you know that that level of prof- profundity uh, you can't say anything. Everything you say sounds trite. <laughs> Everything you want to do sounds stupid. It sounds superficial. It sounds ridiculous. You know, even the truths of the scriptures that you want to say, oh, you just sound, they, what can you do? You know, and I told him that. I told him that. I was like, I, I don't know what to say, Arapesh. I don't know what to say. I said, my mom's fine and has always been fine. I, I haven't had to deal with that. I, I have nothing. And uh, he said, God is everywhere and always perfect. <laughs> I said, what's that? He said, God is everywhere and always perfect. He said, I'm, keep, I'm just telling myself that over and over and over and over again because it doesn't seem like that at all. But Takur says, God is everywhere and always perfect. And he says, that's all I'm doing. That's all I'm doing. I see my mom like that. I feel the hurt that I'm going through. God is everywhere and always perfect. I'm learning. I know that this moment is a summation of every desire I've ever had, and it's there to teach me and to make me stronger, and it has all the qualities of love in it, and I just have to keep insisting on it until I can see it, until I can see it. That's taking refuge. You might not have the answers inside, 
But the fact is, you've got that tenacity to sit there and know God is everywhere and always perfect. This moment is the summation of everything I've ever known and ever chosen, and I will learn from it according to the nature of this moment that I know to be a manifestation of love, that I know to be a manifestation of bliss, of shat-chit-ananda, and I will not let go of that. That is refuge. Refuge is inevitable. It is said in the Ramayana that a crow named Bhushandi did not at first accept Rama as an incarnation of God. Once it incurred Rama's displeasure, it traveled through the different worlds, the lunar, solar, and so forth, and, and through Mount Kailas to escape Rama's wrath. But it found that it could not escape. So we've got going on here, we've got you, you know, not real sure about the divinity of anything, maybe not for whatever it is, whatever the, 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 the unsureness is, you know, which is, it's because of that unsureness that we get involved in any of our other refuges. You know, it's like the reason we go do this for refuge or that for refuge instead of going for God is because we're not real sure about this one. <laughs> you know, like, oh, it looks like a stone statue to me. I don't know. You know, I don't know how much refuge I'm going to find there. But this ideal, take that ideal and work with it and stick with it. So we've got a crow here that's doing the same thing, going all around, taking refuge in everything to get away from this idea of this displeasure of Rama with him, Rama being upset with him. God's not happy with him. But he found that he could not escape. And then he surrendered himself to Rama and took refuge at his feet. Rama took the crow in his hands and swallowed it. And thereupon the crow found that it was seated in its own nest in a tree. After its pride had thus been crushed, the bird came to realize that though Rama looked like any other man, yet he contained in his stomach the entire universe, the sky, the moon, the sun, the stars, the oceans, the rivers, men, animals, and trees. Your refuge is inevitable, <laughs> which is a great thing, because Takur says we're all going to reach the goal. You know, some are going to do it quicker than others, and some of us are going to be bobbing along the last one coming out of the auditorium, but all of us are going to get there. And it's because it's inevitable. All of your other refuges will fail you, whether it's your family, your husband, your wife, your mother, drinking, <laughs> drugs, movies, whatever your other shrine is, whatever other worships you're doing with your life, those worships will fail. The only thing that will not fail is that inner divinity, that self, that spark that makes you breathe, that is the nature of Satchitananda, the nature of pure love, divine love, that is never angered, not keeping a record of wrongs, that's always hoping, always encouraging, always giving, and always persevering. Take refuge. Take refuge in God alone. Take refuge in God alone. Hafiz writes a wonderful poem that I'll close with. I got kin. Plant so that your own heart will grow. Love, so God will think, ah, I've got family in that body. I should start inviting that soul over for coffee and rolls. Sing, because this is a food our starving world needs. Laugh, because that is the purest sound.